your jacket oh this is metalita they just sent yeah, me it yesterday this too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <really? laughs> that's funny oh that's funny this should be the intro hey guys we're both wearing metalita gear right now unfortunately uh, did not get paid to say that but yeah <laughs> yeah we did not but well, metalita is sponsoring this podcast so oh, metalita, really? oh, this, that's awesome yeah metalita this is your uh shout out where shannon and i are both wearing your gear the scrub hey. jacket so guys, if you want to go online and uh, check out metalita.com, you can get 20% off with a discount code beyond the medicine 20. There, that's nice. the intro. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Shannon, what's going on? How have you been? I've been fantastic. Uh, transition from residency to fellowship uh, so far has been pretty steep learning curve, but we get a lot more weekends, so... That's good. There's a trade-off. <laughs> yeah. And you're but doing I'm your GI fellowship, it. right? Yeah. I'm doing GI. GI. Nice. And that's three years? Am I correct? It is, it is three years. Yeah. yeah. So three years internal medicine, three more years GI. Nice. And then you're also doing uh, an obesity medicine track as well, right? Yeah. I, I want to do an obesity fellowship, but it's a little more informal. You don't have to tack on an extra year. You can. There's a few programs that are starting to pop up across the state, but uh, it can be all through uh, CME credits. Mm -hmm. And then if you reach a number of credits, you can sit for the boards for obesity medicine. So I, I plan to do that. Uh, I haven't started any of the coursework. I want to get through probably at least first year of fellowship before I start delving into that. Yeah, yeah, that's super cool. You've been, uh, you're also into, um, for people who don't know you, you're into lifestyle medicine, you uh, into health and fitness, you do a lot of yoga, very impressive yoga, by the way. <laughs> Thanks. I've been practicing, <laughs> I think I've been practicing probably nine years now, maybe more, nine, ten years. Wow. How, how, is that, how has that kind of affected you as a doctor and like your your outlook on how you would want to treat patients or how, how just, you know, your outlook on being a physician. So I've been doing yoga bef even before I started medical school mm -hmm. and it's incredibly centering. I I'm, I'm trying to get better at the meditation part. It was, it's been, uh, more of a physical practice for me for a long time. Uh, but I've, I've really applied what I've learned through my yoga pra practice to advice from my patients. And that doesn't have to be yoga. It just has to be something that can be movement, uh, something, you know, with repetition that allows you to get in more of a trance state that allows you to ignore the stresses for just 20, 30 minutes at least and get the value from that. Absolutely. Yeah. I, uh, I I do more of a meditation type thing, but I did a little bit of Bikram yoga for oh, nice. yeah. when, when I was in medical school. And every single time I did it, I felt amazing after. I always right. remember that feeling right after where I just felt so refreshed, so good. I want to, I really want to actually get back into that. Have you done, do yeah. you do Bikram? I don't do Bikram. Bikram's a little too intense for me. The heat is... Yeah, pretty unbearable. More, more so the smell of the room <laughs> from everybody's sweat. <laughs> true, it's true. Really, really intense. True. Uh, I do primarily vinyasa yoga, which some classes will be heated, but not as hot as Bikram. Mm -hmm. uh, they're a little bit shorter too, and there's more variability in the postures that you do. Uh, mm -hmm. Bikram is is very cool, but I could see myself getting bored with it if I did it for years because it's the same, what is it, 22 postures over right. and over again. Uh, but I really promote it if someone is into it because it is that kind of repetitive meditative state that Bikram can provide. Mm -hmm. Do you think you'll apply that in your practice when you're treating patients? Because, I mean, you're going into GI gut health. I'm, uh, You know, stress uh, can affect your gut health. And, you know, even the, some of the postures that we that are done in yoga uh, move around your gut. You know, they stretch it out. They uh, 
get it in different positions, which I'm sure there is research showing that's beneficial. Yeah, um, any any type of physical activity is going to help reduce stress and thus have um, good benefits for gut health. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if yoga specifically has any proven data to su- su- to suggest it, but just any sort of movement, sweat, stress reduction <clears throat> is going to be a have a positive benefit for gut health. Right. Uh, there's some anecdotal evidence on the benefits of yoga for IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, mm. which is a huge umbrella of, of disease and GI, and it's kind of bread and butter of what we see in, in clinic yeah. um, once in, uh, many other conditions are rolled out. Uh, but yoga is often recommended uh, to patients who have this diagnosis of IBS yeah. But it's in the context usually of gastroenterologists or doctors who don't actually practice yoga themselves. Right. Uh, so I think that, I mean, I've already tried to start doing it in just, just pointing out specific postures mm. that you can do for um, for helping with digestion. Uh, it's not completely evidence-based, but, mm. you know, the thing is the bowels will benefit from any sort of movement and shifts in gravity, right? Yeah. I mean, um, so just getting people to move in ways that their bodies don't move normally can have benefits in that way. Absolutely. The the, the connection between um, stress and mind, what's the connection, the... The, the gut, brain gut axis. The brain to gut axis, yes. Yeah. That, that connection. It, it, there's a lot of research on that that, that shows that our microbiome and that um, you know our gut health is uh, extremely linked to our brain health. And I, for those for people listening who don't know, IBS is irritable bowel syndrome. And uh, that's the the diagnosis is highly linked to stress. Am I right? Or stress or anxiety? Oh, right? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I think anyone listening, if even if you don't have this, uh, you know, a diagnosis of IBS, we can all agree that when we get really, really nervous, you feel the instantaneous effects that it has on our gut. Mm. So you can imagine if you're chronically under you know, low grade stress, what that could be doing to your intestines and, and how your digestion is working properly. And, you know, the way that, you know, Western societies are, are designed is in such a way that we don't value, uh, time for eating and digestion Mm -hmm. and we're chronically stressed individuals. So we move about our day and we're rushing, rushing, rushing. And then we give ourselves maybe five to 10 minutes to shovel down food and we don't allow that that back to the basics rest and digest time period. Yeah. Um, and over time, it, it can cause pretty detrimental effects. And then vice versa, when our digestion doesn't feel optimal, that in itself leads to not feeling well mentally, feeling more stressed out because you're uncomfortable or whatever it may be. So mm-hmm. it's a, it's unfortunately a never-ending feedback loop to not feel well in our brain and not feel well in our gut. Yeah, yeah. I just spoke with uh, my last guest or two guests ago. We talked a little bit about that, you know, uh, sitting down and enjoying your food when you're when you're eating and not because we're always on the go and we want to eat while we're rushed. But I think that uh, what we eat is important, but how we eat also is important too, you know, even whether it be sitting with, uh, you know, loved ones or family or friends, having that meal together, putting you in that good emotional state while you're eating, that's highly overlooked. We don't, we don't really talk about too much about that, but I think it's, I think it's important because like you said, you know, we need that time to, uh, step back and, uh, be mindful while we're eating. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I, I, when I think about what leads to optimal health, I try to think about what is consistent across all cultures in the world yes. that people value um, that leads to longevity and um, and joy in life. And mealtime is not just about feeding. You know, there's so much more to that. It's about creating human connection and the the social benefits of enjoying a meal together that we overlook. You know, we we think of the pillars of wellness so often being diet, exercise, sleep, right? But the social aspect that leads 
much more into the mental health aspect could trump all of those. So thinking thinking about a meal is so much more than what it is, but how we do it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Some is, uh, so I've gotten questions before, you know, the, the, the common question is, is it healthy to blank or is it healthy <laughs> to blank blank? So is it healthy to eat this or is it healthy to eat that? Well, a lot of times I, I, I try to put it into context. There's nothing more healthy in my opinion there's, this and this is not like evidence based, but in my opinion, there's nothing more healthy than sitting with your loved ones at a barbecue and enjoying yourself. And you know, yeah, sometimes you're not going to eat the healthiest food, uh, give it, but which you can. There are healthy options at a barbecue, but there's nothing more healthy than being in that environment and connecting with people that you love and eating joyfully like that. That's a very very healthy. That you know, we overlook that. We really do. So. Uh, you know, right, you don't want to eat all the hamburgers and hot dogs all at once, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's still a, a, a healthy mental, uh, spiritual benefit to being with people and sharing food because food is the ultimate connector. And like you said, you know, uh, that common thing among cultures, a lot of cultures, the big connector is, is food. That's where people gather and they talk and they celebrate. Yeah, I I completely agree. And that's why I'm really careful when I talk about making dietary changes with patients, because it can be really isolating if the whole family is not on board and the person takes it a little bit too seriously and they yeah. end up eating meals out of a Tupperware that sure they're quote unquote healthy, but they've isolated themselves from other things yeah. that bring joy into their life that can be so much more important than what's on the actual plate. Ideally, you know, you would work together as a family as uh, or if, whoever you're living with and eating with to make subtle changes to your to what you're putting on your plate together. Um, but it shouldn't feel so isolating and, and painful yeah. and miserable to eat well. Right. Right. That's yeah. so interesting. I haven't thought about that, but that's so true that if you are if you are someone who is trying to get healthy, but your family doesn't eat very healthy what are you going to, are you going to, you know, like seclude yourself or, uh, isolate yourself so you can start eating healthy? Is there, but what are the drawbacks from that? Because now you feel isolated. That's a really, uh, that's a really interesting thought. I have not, I haven't really thought about it like that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really tough. And if say you're the person in the house that's in charge of grocery shopping and preparing meals, it's a little bit easier because you have the control, but, um, if that's not your main role or if you're younger and your your parents are in charge and whatever they put on the plate you, you are expected to eat, mm -hmm. it can be really, really tough. And it just takes, you know, consistent conversations with your loved ones and say, you know, these are the reasons why I want to make these changes. And I think we could all do it together. It's yeah. not going to work the first time. But over time, you know, if you if you stay consistent with why you want to make certain changes a lot of families will support you and and agree and give it a try yeah yeah it's a, the environment's a huge plays a huge role in health you know like if your family's eating healthy you're going to be eating healthy too that <laughs> that subconsciously affects you because you're already you know you already have a different viewpoint on food i think a part of our culture in america our food culture in america i'm not really sure how to describe it but it's I mean, fast food is a big part of American culture. Uh, eating on the go, you know, barbecues, things like that, hamburgers. That's that's American food. That's American culture. And I wonder how that plays into our health. Because we, we like to put the blame on a lot of things. Like we just make poor choices or the food industry. Food industry, you know, obviously does, they, that, that's a big, that plays a big role. Uh, but also I think the culture. I think culture is the foundation to the way we eat, our, our eating habits, because if you, when you travel and you go to other countries and you say, and you see the underlying culture, that's the food is a big portion of the culture and, you know, how you eat, what you eat, that, that plays into uh, your health. And what, I, I'm not sure if you'd know, do you know the, uh, it's a Japanese community that has like one of the highest longevity rates? Uh, yes, I, I don't, 
I know which group you're referring to. I don't know the name off the top of my head, but they're one of the blue zones. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I can't remember the name. Yeah, their culture is a huge contributor to why their longevity is, like, (laughs) their average lifespan is like 95 or something. Yeah. I am a huge uh, advocate for reading the book Blue Zones. Blue Zones. Uh, Just, yeah, it's really, really good. It it looks at that community. It looks at... um, Okay, we'll uh, link that in the show notes, guys. Sardinia, Greece, and Loma Linda, California, um, the Seventh-day Adventists, a few other... Uh, groups of people across the world who have the highest percentage of centurions living into their hundreds. Mm -hmm. And it looks at patterns of what those communities do. And contrary to what uh, American beliefs are and what, what health and fitness are, it's a lot more moderate than you would think. You know, I, I, I have this presumption that many people in the U.S. at least, and a lot of, you know, Westernized societies believe that health and wellness comes from hitting the gym, high intensity, six days a week, eating nothing but lettuce and turkey or right. whatever it is, being super restrictive. And that's the only way that you're really going to have true health. And these blue zones will will say it's anything but, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's sure you're eating a lot of leafy greens and you're moving, but the movements, the movement is moderate. It's just walking throughout the day and and picking up after the house and cutting down, <laughs> cutting down trees and chopping for firewood and very basic um, moderate intensity movement. And again, back to the idea of community. All of these blue zones communities are are seated in a in a deep uh, value of of community and culture mm-hmm. and uh, upholding certain traditions and that is that is every single one of these blue zones will will have that which i think is remarkable yeah that's that's so cool yeah we have this idea that you know the harder we go hit the gym the more muscle we have uh the healthier healthier we are not always the case because when i was when i was working out really hard and i was in the best shape of my life at least physically Mm-hmm. Uh, I was downing uh, protein shakes and uh, had like my pre-workout before yep. <laughs> with a ton of caffeine in it and I was all amped up and then I wasn't sleeping because I was having too much caffeine Yep. and I was consuming also a lot of protein too, which I, my, my view on protein has completely changed. I really don't think we need mm-hmm. all that much protein because I, I've noticed how my body has changed after, ever since I stopped consuming the protein shakes and I really there I really have not lost that much muscle in terms of you know the amount I've been working out I don't think I, I I've been getting a lot more skeptical over the years over these uh fads and like um foods that are supplements foods that are kind of like taken as uh the norm or like as a must it I, f- yeah. I feel like I feel like a lot of it's been marketed to us in a way to make us believe certain things, and I've cu- I've become much less interested in uh, all the fads. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, definitely. Back to what you were saying about when people ask you, "Is blank healthy? Is this healthy?" Yeah, uh, it's it's all uh, driven by these fads, you know, because. We live in a capitalist society, and uh, there will be new health fads as we all try to pursue this, you know, this picture of fitness and wellness. It's very trendy overall. Yeah, very. And it's the a big market, business. absolutely, the market will take one little trend and turn it into a complete uh, business. Mm-hmm. And it's all unnecessary. Yeah. It's all completely unnecessary. Mm-hmm. You have to go back to the basics. And we love also, to complicate things. Why do we do that? We love to. <laughs> and the answer is simplicity. Always, 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 always is simplicity. It's the things you know that are right. It's the things that you know are good for you. You don't need a collagen supplementation. You don't need to be on the keto diet. You don't need any of that. You need to just listen to your body, trial and error, and see what works for you. And 
the best measurement of whether or not you're healthy is do you feel well, you know? And a lot of times that's that's hard to assess because sometimes we don't know how well yeah. we could feel if we made certain changes, but compare how you're feeling now to when you were 19 and maybe partying all the time and drinking too much. Like you know yeah. that there's certain things that are are going to pr- to prevent you from feeling your best and the the best gauge is do I wake up feeling refreshed? Do I have energy throughout the day? Do yeah. I have value in what I do? Do I feel, you know, proud to be here and, and energized and happy? Yeah. Um, there's no number on the scale. There's no number, proportion of macronutrients that can predict um, what healthy means for you. Mm-hmm. And also on that note is this idea that one one way of living is the best way for everyone. That, you know, all these trends of low carb, high carb, whatever they are, is the appropriate thing to do for every single person out there. Um, And again, back to the blue zones, not to hammer that in, but you'll see that the way each culture eats is is different, you know, because the the needs are different or it, it doesn't matter because there's, there's a lot of ways there's to get to the end goal of, of living well and healthy. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah that's excellent point. Um, there was a point I was going to just bounce off right now, but I just completely, it's like, <laughs> just like <laughs> lost it. Um, yeah. But going off of that, I wanted to get into, I mean, we know that the keeping it simple and basic is extremely important. Um, And we're trying to also balance that with all this new information that we're getting from research and uh, new articles that come out every week. And we're trying to process all of that because, you know, one week something contradicts what we believed the last week. And I've talked about this before, and I just find that extremely frustrating uh, so I've been less, I've been more less interested in the next bit of research that tells me coffee's not good for me or it is good for right. me. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, like we just don't know anything. Uh, there could be a hundred years from now, we're still going to be having this debate. There's still going to be research telling us, you know, coffee is either good for you or bad for you. Uh, we're still going to have this debate where we're going to f- figure out if red meat actually is good for us or bad for us. I mean, I mean, there is a good amount. I'm sure you as a uh, GI doctor are uh, very keenly aware of <laughs> red meat's, benef- uh, red meat's uh, uh, cautions for GI health and colon cancer. Uh, yeah. Let's, do, I, I, let's I, talk I, about that, actually. About because I'm, curi- right. I'm curious about that, just personally. Uh, yeah. Because I don't... This is going to sound... This is not going to be the most popular belief, but I think that... Uh, I think that one. I think that once in a while, if you're having red meat and you're doing it in a way that's, uh, you know, if you're celebrating it, if it's something that's part of your culture and you're celebrating and you're, you're doing it in moderation. And you know, there is different kinds of red meat. There is the grass-fed and uh, hormone-free and things like that. I don't think that's as bad as we like to hype it up to be. If you're doing that in moderation, but you know, that's that. That this is a great you're the perfect person to have this conversation with. <laughs> yeah. So I, I completely agree with you. I think that meat in general has such a bad reputation and I think it has a lot to do with the quality of meat that we have here and nothing to do with it being meat. Yeah. Um, so all, uh, most studies that look at the quote unquote detrimental effects on meat uh, and disease are usually just associations. They're looking at um, dietary surveys for individuals, and they can, you know, the, the whoever's working on that paper can run a bunch of stats and say we found this association that those who eat more red meat have a higher risk of of colon cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's all association. Yeah. And do I think you should be pounding, you know, three hamburgers every single day? Absolutely not. But Eating red meat in moderation, I really, I, I truly think, and again, we will never know the answer because nutrition research is so incredibly complicated. There's mm-hmm. way too many covariables, uh, but I don't think eating red meat in moderation is going to have 
a huge effect on your health. It's either going to be neutral, um, or may have some benefit if it's, you know, if it's well-sourced meat and, um, it helps you feel well. Uh, the reason I think that those associations are found is, uh, because typically, um, high red meat consumption is associated with other poor dietary choices. Right. Those who tend to eat more red meat are probably also eating a lot of refined carbohydrates and, um, excessive caloric intake in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's even some studies that show that it has nothing to do with the meat itself, but socioeconomic status, you know, there's, there's way too many things to tease out, uh, that I don't, I would never feel comfortable saying that red meat causes blank. Right. It's impossible. Right. It's absolutely impossible right. to yes. prove that. Yeah, it, we're human beings. We're 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 ever changing organisms as we move through mm-hmm. um, a world of surplus intake and other factors that affect our health. That um, that is just it's uh, very naive to think that you can make that statement. Yeah, um, but everybody's yeah. making these statements, right? <laughs> And that's yeah. part of that. I mean, I get it. We can we can jump to we can make certain um, observations, but I, I just don't think because I just know that a hundred years from now we're still going to be having this debate and we're still going to be asking the same questions. And I, I mean, there's a few basics that if you just go to, you can kind of uh, give yourself a decent answer, and that's just you know, is it something? Was it food a hundred years ago before we started processing everything? Uh, is it coming from the earth? And uh, have our ancestors been eating this? And you know, like very, very basic questions that are just you know common sense questions. You know, if it's got a wrapper on it, probably not the best choice of food. Uh, or if it comes in a box and then you put it in the microwave, also not a good choice. Just real basic <laughs> things, <laughs> right? We know these things. Processed hot dog, like foods like processed meats, you know, hot dogs, things like that. Definitely not a good choice. Right. We we know these things. I think, you know, every person can recognize, you know, what actually is healthy. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's hard. We we live in a world of surplus of of food combinations that are designed to have us addicted um, to the taste and it tastes really good. And we go back for more and it's so convenient. Yeah. It's so convenient to eat something out of a box compared to making a meal that's equally as satisfying, but just takes more time. Um, and I just want to say that I'm really tired of blaming the individual for being sick. You know, I'm really, really tired of that notion that that's okay for blaming the individual for being sick or obese or whatever it is, because it is not, it is not just up to that one person, you know, back to the the value of culture. Our culture has moved in such a way that we, we don't value high quality food. We don't value sitting down to, to eat together. We don't value sleep. We don't value all these things. So, uh, it, an individual is up against a lot when they're trying to make good choices. Yeah. It's really, really tough. And I'm, you know, I, I feel it moving throughout my day working in healthcare where, you know, you hear these, these side comments from people like, Oh, but you know, they're lazy. They don't do this. They don't take care of themselves, but it's, it's not that straightforward. And I, I really, really want to change that, that attitude that, that we have for each other. Yeah. And that, that comes down to compassion. That's so true. Uh, I did my rotations in Detroit, mm-hmm. and in the inner city of Detroit, and I saw a lot of, uh, you know, it's a very poor socioeconomic area where I was doing my uh, rotations, and I saw a lot of, I saw kids that were 11, 12 with type 2 diabetes, uh, three, 400 pounds. I've seen a couple 500 pounders. Uh mm-hmm. It was not uncommon, it's, and it's not uncommon in Detroit. It's, I think it's the fattest city in the country. Uh, right. But a lot of it's, um, you know, like I'd never placed the blame on the children that were 11 or 12 years old because what do they know better? Uh, right. They're brought up in a family that's also teaching them really bad habits, who came from a family that was taught bad habits, and uh, who came from families who were poor. And when you're in that, when you're not 
educated enough to know the difference between what's good for you and what's bad for you. And you, when you don't have the means to necessarily uh, buy the good things that will keep you healthy, uh, I, I, I found it really hard for me to just blame the 12-year-old kid who was brought up in a family and is 400 pounds now. Like, yeah. they, they, you know, they, I mean... What are they going to do? They're 12 and they become addicted to food from birth and they're in this environment in their home. I really think that it's not well, it's not the individual's fault all the time. There are others. I mean, we can take ownership and change things, definitely. That, is, that can be done by us. That's, that's, not, that's not the easiest thing. But even, even if that, you know, that individual, that 12-year-old that's now an adult... Mm-hmm. And they do take ownership. They have so many things against them. You know, right. they have actual physiologic physiologic changes that make it difficult for them to lose weight and reverse some of these effects. Not to say that they shouldn't try. And absolutely, if they're if they're interested in in making healthy lifestyle choices, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but they're up against changes, increased number of fat cells and changes in hormonal pathways that take a long time to reverse. And then on top of that, they're still in a culture that, that making those choices is, is still really hard. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm just really, um, really, um, torn about this attitude that we have. And I think Mm -hmm. we just, what you're saying, just, just need to have so much more compassion when, People are trying to make good choices and, and they're yeah. up against a lot. Yeah, I think just me- being in medicine is humbling. Uh, yeah. You see so many things. You see so many different types of people. If you keep that open eye, if you keep that open mind and that empathy towards people, you really start to understand that, you know, life is not fair. Oh, It's just life is not fair. People are dealt different cards, uh, you know, what makes me much more grateful for what I've been given in my life, and uh, you learn not to judge people as much. I mean, our culture in medicine, we do judge. You know, we like to have those office conversations yeah. where we're, you know, oh, this guy of just, uh, you know, like we probably we know these conversations that are of had course, in the office. Of course, of <laughs> course. Uh, but at the same time, I I try not to. I try not to judge people because you never know what they've gone through or what their upbringing's been like or yeah. you know the cards they've been dealt. Yeah, you're saying that you know you did a lot of your a lot of your experiences in Detroit and on a similar note I I've, I've done all my postgrad training in North Philadelphia which is um, notoriously a very poor socioeconomic region and you know I I have, I go into an office visit with one goal, you know, with, with my set of goals for the person and they're coming in having just experienced so much trauma that the things that I'm asking them to do, while they sound really simple to me are, are incredibly tough. You know, they're coming in, their nephew has just been shot. They're dealing with the aftermath of that. Um, and, they're, they've lost their job and I'm asking them to get their blood sugars under better control. So some of their symptoms can be better. You know, it's just, it's just really Not the hard highest to, of priorities to on their list right now. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And you have to meet people. And when they don't halfway. meet those expectations, we get mad. <clears throat> exactly. We're like, Oh, they're just non-compliant. We yeah. throw out that word a lot. Oh, non-compliant, yeah. non-compliant. But I mean, most people have a reason to be, you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot going on, a lot of trauma, a lot of terrible experiences that people feel that, you know, we're, a lot of us are lucky enough not to have to experience from day to day. Yeah. So it makes making good choices easier. Yeah. Hey guys, thank you for tuning into the podcast. We're going to just take a second to talk about this great promotion from our sponsor, Metalita. They are know what it's like to have a hectic schedule and not very much free time that is why they are offering a free at-home try-on so if you're not 100 sure of your size or your style you can easily order multiple things from their website at metalita.com you can try them on at the comfort of your own home you can keep what you like return what you don't like or if you want something embroidered you can have it sent back to get it embroidered this is 
all done with shipping covered by Metalita, and this is 100% risk-free. You can also get an additional 20% off by using the discount code BEYONDMEDICINE20. Now, back to the episode. What would you, so you're going into obesity medicine. Um, what kind of, what, what would you want to tell your patients once you're in practice, you know, and you're seeing people who want to lose weight? And, you know, what, what, are, what are some methods you really want to implement or you want to uh, kind of uh, communicate to your patients? So I, I'm interested in obesity medicine, um, but I'm more so interested in lifestyle medicine. And yeah. a lot of those, a lot of times those two things overlap significantly, obviously, yeah. um, specifically for the ob- ob- obese population. I've always wanted to take the approach that the goal is not to lose weight. The goal is is to be healthy and weight loss can be a side effect Mm -hmm. because when, when you start focusing on numbers on a scale, when you start, you know, or waist circumference, whatever it may be, you, your mindset is in such a way that you will, you will make choices that are not sustainable and that they're not actually good for you in order to meet those, you know, those number goals that your doctor or you have set for yourself. Mm-hmm. And that may last for a month, two months, whatever it may be. But if it's not true changes in, in how you live that are, if that feel easy, that make you feel good and that you can think, okay, two, three years from now, yeah, I still want to, I still want to be having these same healthy habits throughout the day. Uh, then it's, it's not going to be long-term. There's a, um, this is kind of kind of depressing for me because I love lifestyle medicine, but I think it's because we've approached it so poorly uh, for so long in that there has never been a single diet, exercise, lifestyle intervention that has proven to provide long-term sustainable weight loss. Hmm. None. None of them. Okay. Why do you think sure. that is? They they last for a year or whatever it may be. But if you look at any sort of diet intervention uh, and look at it five, ten years out, the weight is gained back. Is that um, why everybody on The Biggest Loser gets their weight, gains their weight back? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because they're doing extreme things, right. right? They're doing incredibly extreme things that you just can't live like that forever. And you shouldn't be expected to do those extreme things and that your body is not going to change in such a way that you're going to want to gain that weight right back. Mm-hmm. So that's you know one thing that I want to make clear with any patient that I come into contact with where you know weight loss is hopefully just a secondary or tertiary goal for them mm-hmm. that obtaining health should be priority. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you want to, what do you want to feel throughout the day? What do you want to be able to do that maybe you can't do right now? Mm-hmm. And when we change our goals to, to that, then, then we're more likely to make them sustainable and, yeah. and make the choices that that we need to do to keep them up and and do them for for a lifetime um how do you think we can do that as as you know just as practitioners it doesn't matter what kind of practitioner but i i feel like our job is going to have to be getting people to sh- to shift beliefs or change their beliefs on health or on themselves because that's I feel like that's the fundamental thing we might be talking about here. That's the the mind shift, the the belief system that, you know, what are your thoughts on it? You know, how do you want to feel? What are your goals? And then getting people to want to feel like that. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Uh we're we're up against a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. We're up against a lot in that goal. Um but I think it takes a village, you know, it, it takes it takes a buy-in from from everybody to to change how how we live. Uh, if one person, you know, in, in a lot of these instances where you can capture a patient is when they've had a scare. Unfortunately, you know, yeah, when they've yeah. had a health scare, a heart attack, or whatever it may mm-hmm. be. Everybody's um, ready to live their healthiest life. 
at that point, you yeah. know, but it's just putting them in the mindset of giving, giving the patient or whoever you're talking to the, the power that they're in control to an extent, you know, there's obviously we can't prevent everything, but to an extent they're in the power of, of preventing, mm-hmm. uh, their health from deteriorating and capturing mm-hmm. before it ever happens. Um, but making sure they understand that it's not just them alone and that they need to get the support of everyone around them and hopefully encourage others to, yeah. to make changes. And that's such an excellent point. I really want to drive this point because I feel like if this could be life-changing for people, mm-hmm. uh, just there are a lot of people that make the drastic changes that they need to make in their lives and their lifestyles only after something bad happens. You know, mm-hmm. every day almost, you know, I encounter the patient with uh, the heart attack. And, you know, in that moment, in those days, they they make the decision to quit smoking. They never smoke again and to eat better. And they start doing these things. But I want to get people to make these decisions long before anything has anything bad happens and to do it uh, preemptively. And I, I, that's gonna, that's one of my goals. I want to figure out how to break through to people to get them to real without necessarily having to scare the crap out of them (laughs) yeah you know uh because people it it really does take something to happen for people to change yeah it does and i think part of that is human nature i mean i'm sure i was listening to your podcast with uh vanya yeah when you were talking about burnout yeah and how it just it just happened, you know, and you felt it. And in the aftermath, you made changes, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's hard to do those things early uh, to prevent it because it's not affecting you now, right? Yeah. And I think it's human nature too. Until you've experienced something painful, that you think you're going to get away with it, you know. And I think that's a lot of people. They don't sleep. They don't, uh, you know, do things that they that could prevent them from being very stressed or whatever simple thing it might be until it gets to a point where it's unbearable anymore and then dealing with depression or whatever it may be in in any category of of wellness you know they get to a point where it's just it's just unbearable and that's when the changes happen Mm -hmm. um i wish i had a good answer for saying you know how how can we together um you know convince each other really that you know making changes Mm -hmm. early as prevention is key. Um, but I think it's just recognizing that, you know, recognizing that power, you know, recognizing that each of us right now can make changes that will help us feel better five years from now. What I, yeah, definitely, definitely. What I've really, um, what I've really noticed, what really gets people to change, what, a very strong driving force for for people is their loved ones or their family. Uh, so, so I've heard the conversation go down where it's like you know, hey, you're uh, you're not going to be able to walk your daughter down the aisle when she gets married, uh, and I've seen people in those moments uh, really really change. Like I really see, like I saw the emotional response, and I was like, okay, this person is definitely going to change, uh, because yep. there's something outside, bigger than themselves, outside of themselves that they can actually make that decision for. Or I've spoken with uh, an older gentleman who just had a grandchild, and he just said, I just, he just told me like I was getting his history, and he's like, yeah, I just quit smoking uh, last month, and I was like, why'd you do that? And how long have you been smoking? It's been smoking for 40 years. And I was like, what made you just quit? He's like, I had a grandson, and I realized I kind of want to be around for him. Oh. And and I was like, so you just up and quit? And he's like, yeah, I just quit. And it was hard, And but I'd rather be here for my grandchild. So it's, it's usually something a lot bigger than you because, you know, we can care about ourselves so much. But, you know, I think that when you when there's something bigger than you, that can really be a huge motivator. So I'd yeah. encourage people actually to find something that's bigger than them. Yeah. You know, that's whether it be that point. loved one or, uh, you know, being a good example for their kids or for their uh, siblings, uh, finding that reason that's bigger than you. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, I'd also like to take this opportunity to say that, uh, no one should be smoking. Please, please quit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If that's one, if that's one thing that you can take from listening to this podcast is that, um, you know, there's a lot of fads. Yeah. (laughs) This will not be bad for a hundred years from now. Nobody will be saying (laughs) smoking (laughs) is healthy. That's a guarantee. Yeah. It's a guarantee. So, so please quit and talk to your doctor about how we can help you quit. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, so I wanted before we before I'm having a great time with this yeah. conversation, but I wanted Me to too. get into uh, I wanted to get into like the gut microbiome because this is something I've been really interested in. There's a lot of new talk about this, uh, and I know you are as a GI doctor. This is going to be a big uh, a big area of your expertise, and so. I'm kind of curious. All this research, I was I watched this documentary on Netflix uh, a while ago uh, that was talking about the mind, the the mind gut connection, and how powerful it is. And there was some there's some talk on there about you know like even sharing some of the gut bacteria with people that live in your household, and how uh, that contributes to people having the same feelings, and uh, you know, people with depression share the same gut microbiome. I found that like whoa, mind blowing. I want to. This is something I'm so so interested in. I really want to like. What what are you What are you most interested in about this right now? Uh, I think I'm most interested in uh, the idea of of how how quickly we can change the microbiome, you know, how, how quickly and what we, what we put into our bodies and what thoughts we manifest, how that can quickly change. Mm. Uh, and the reason like why our thoughts can change our microbiome, that would you just, yeah. So just if we somehow, change our, our, if we're changing, uh, our mood or our depression is, is, is getting better for whatever reason that can affect the microbiome, uh, and vice versa. Changing mm-hmm. the microbiome can help, uh, treat depression and other type of mental, right. mental illnesses. Now this is very early in research. Research is, is so, so vast and it's going to take forever to really get down to the nitty gritty of, of exactly what happens, how it happens and which certain bacterial strains are responsible for what. Mm -hmm. Uh, but in preliminary studies doing fecal microbiota transplant and for anyone who's not familiar, that basically means taking a healthy person's poop and putting it into another individual. That Um, sounds like fun. It, I'm, I can't <laughs> wait to do it myself. Not on myself, but on other people. Reverse like pooping. <laughs> Reverse pooping, everybody. That's what it should be called. Yeah, be so termed. it's the actual process of fecal transplant is, is, is pretty barbaric. It's basically just taking the healthy individual's poop. I wonder who came uh, up with this idea. Like, let's put some poop in this person and see how they... <laughs> so what's interesting, I, I could rattle on about all this, but this has been, this was like a very, very ancient Chinese practice. It mm. was uh, like consuming small bits of feces from healthy people in this broth oh, so they were taking soup. it in hole number one or like through just the main oral, hole. Just, just yeah. taking it. Yeah. <laughs> this was done, I don't know, like 2,000 years ago or something. Uh, and on a side side note, just if you think about the instinct of of dogs to eat, you know, poop or whatever, and mm. they're some, you know, they're they're not getting sick from this all the time. Not that I encourage anyone to just. So I shouldn't up get mad at scoop. For, I shouldn't get mad <laughs> at scoop for for, for eating exactly. Poop. He's just he's just doing what he knows how to do best. Yeah, but. This is this is an ancient idea that uh, of of how powerful the microbiome from you know from feces in the colon can be for certain aspects of health. Uh, but anyway, so the process of fecal transplant is taking a healthy person's poop, putting it in a blender, and then administering it safely to the gut of of the unhealthy person. Mm-hmm. And, this and that is, is rectally. Well, it's done. It can be done endoscopically so that it actually okay. gets to the first part of like the small intestine. The, yeah. Because if it's done rectally, it would just get into the colon. Yeah. But okay. if you do an endoscopic p- 
procedure where you go down into the stomach, past the mm-hmm. stomach, into the small intestine. You can kind of administer small amounts throughout um, okay. the first, throughout the small intestine, which is um, ha- helps make up the microbiome as mm. well. Um, but it's this has been done for several conditions. Um, it's only currently FDA approved for uh, for uh, C diff infection. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but it's been applied. Can we can we talk about that for our listeners? What C diff is and yeah, why it's yeah. done so for that. C diff is uh, a bacteria that lives in all of our intestines to very small, like very small quantities. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is when this this bacteria overgrows uh, in our colon, and that usually is in the context of taking an antibiotic that affects mm-hmm. your healthy gut microbiome that knocks out any bacteria that's going to help control how much C. diff is growing in our in our colon. Um, the C. diff overgrows, it releases a toxin, and it can make you really, really sick, bad diarrhea, high fevers. Um, it can, and it can get pretty complicated and a person can get pretty sick. Mm-hmm. Uh, so currently, um, Fecal transplant is approved for the treatment of C. diff, uh, especially severe or if it's been refractory to multiple attempts at treatment, um, which makes sense because you're just restoring a person's gut flora so that you have all this flourishing, healthy bacteria that can control and uh, eliminate how much C. diff is in is in the colon. So that's the the really the most established uh, condition that can be treated with fecal transplant. Uh, from there, there's many other conditions that have been studied with fecal transplant from healthy individuals into a person with, say, um, inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. Um, obesity is another one. There's a um, mm-hmm. huge connection with uh, the microbiome and how that affects absorption of food and uh, appropriate nutrient distribution. Uh, And the one that I find the most fascinating is that it's preliminarily been shown to treat depression. Uh, And you take the, you take poop from someone who's not depressed, you put it into the intestines of someone who is depressed. And there's been some promising results to show that it yeah, yeah. I can. I'll find the original mm. study if you want to link it into the cautionary notes, cautionary protocol. Though, <laughs> don't go looking. Don't go eating people's poop. Yeah, please, <laughs> please don't it. do that. Do <laughs> don't go looking for the healthiest person you can find and eat their poop, please. <laughs> please don't eat their poop. That will make you very depressed. I yeah. promise. That <laughs> <laughs> your life has come to this. Uh, that just goes to show, you know, these billions of little bacteria, what their role is in producing certain neurotransmitters. There's, you know, everyone I think is familiar with um, serotonin. Mm-hmm. Um, it's released in times of happiness. Um, it helps. It's a it's a signal of a good mood, mm-hmm. uh, and it's helped. It's uh, and to an extent produced by the gut. And it's produced when when our micro when we have the microbiome to help produce the serotonin. Yeah. So if you're depleted in a a variable and um, quote unquote healthy microbiome distribution, your serotonin levels are going to be lower just because of that. Mm-hmm. And no and to an extent, no amount of SSRI is going to help prevent that if you don't if you're not producing enough right and that's because so because we're not producing enough serotonin so i've read something as far as as extreme as saying 95 percent of the serotonin that's produced in our bodies is from our gut Hmm. i'm not sure i'm not sure if that's 100 percent accurate uh but that's what i read but to to your point that even taking ssri which is so because a lot of our listeners are not Exact, not in medicine, um, mm-hmm. SSRIs prevent the reuptake of serotonin. And so you're saying that because if your gut microbiome is not uh, is not functioning properly and you're not producing enough of the serotonin, taking those SSRIs wouldn't matter because those are they're just preventing the reuptake of the serotonin. And so exactly. you don't even you don't have enough serotonin to begin with. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, you can prevent all the reuptake you want, but if you don't have 
if you're not producing enough, it's not really going to make that big of a difference. Okay. Um, the it gets a little bit more gray uh, in how exactly to change your microbiome on your own. Like, say you um, say you just want to have a healthy gut gut microbiome, or you have a certain condition that you're trying to treat by by changing your gut. Mm-hmm. That's where the science is not so perfect yet. You know, we we're having a hard time even narrowing down if it even is something that can be narrowed down to which strains of bacteria in our gut are so essential for maintaining health. We're, we don't, we don't know. And it's probably a combination of a lot and it's probably individualized, you know, depends on, on the person, you know, you know, what amount and types of bacteria they need in their gut to, to be healthy. Um, but I I have some, you know, basic recommendations for, for in an attempt to produce a healthy gut microbiome. Um, and again, back to our conversation earlier, it's simplicity. Mm-hmm. You do not need the most expensive probiotic on the market that's going to have all these unsupported claims in you know what it can do if you take it. Um, there is there's just no good science <laughs> to mm-hmm. say that any of any microbiome, any I'm sorry, any probiotic on the market will actually produce X Y Z result. Mm-hmm. So. I would say stick with eating, if we're talking just nutrition on the effects of microbiome, it's sticking with eating a variety of foods that are that are from the earth mm-hmm. um, that have prebiotic characteristics. And prebiotic means that you're providing the food that the bacteria need to, to, to live. And that's typically... Uh, a lot of plants. Um, there's specific plants you can eat, but again, keep it simple. Eat a variety of, of plant-based food items to provide the food that your gut bacteria need mm-hmm. to to live. Probiotics. I don't think you need to take a, ta- a a capsule. Sure, that's convenient, but how about getting a bang for your buck and also having food that is probiotic? So. Right. You know, the one that most people are most familiar with is yogurt, but you don't have to eat yogurt. You can eat fermented uh, fermented vegetables. I'm a huge proponent of yeah. things like sauerkraut and kimchi and all these things. Mm-hmm. Incorporating that into one one or two meals a day, it, I really think, you know, is, is all you need. I don't think yeah. you need to buy this capsule that ends up being like $2 a day yeah. when you're not even getting any, you know, enjoyment you or nutrition yeah. from it, you know? You don't even, well, we don't know if they're actually, well, I mean, we could say they're working, but do you, what's the debate on that? <laughs> so, so there's, there's a few, um, there's a few studies, again, back to C. diff, there's a few studies that show this, um, show an effect that, you know, patients in the hospital who are at risk of developing the C. diff infection, and again, that's an overgrowth of a bacteria because you're depleted of others, Mm -hmm. Um, administering a a probiotic reduces the incidence of developing C. diff in a hospitalization. Mm -hmm. So, and there's a few other studies for other types, it's more infection-based, that it does seem to work. So, I do think that taking a daily probiotic can definitely have health benefits, but I don't think you need to do it. If you're a functioning person that can eat and, you know, has access to a variety of foods, mm-hmm. that's the best way to do it. You know, I don't think there's any harm in taking a probiotic, um, but I don't think it's this magical pill that people think you absolutely need mm-hmm. to have good health. You know, gut microbiome is so trendy right now and that people are looking for the absolute best pill, but Again, it comes back to yeah. food is probably a better answer. Um, I will say as an aside, totally not sponsored to say this, but mm-hmm. the, one, the one probiotic that is that has been studied the most, um, just uh, if anyone's interested in looking specifically at if they're going to take something, has it been researched, is the brand Align, A-L-I-G-N. So um, not saying you have to take that one, not saying mm-hmm. you have to take one at all, but if you're looking for something that has a little bit more research um, support, it would be that one. Oh, okay. Um, and again, it's not just the food, uh, you know, 
there's you know correlations with um, regular sleep and stress management, as we've already alluded to, in mm-hmm. maintaining a healthy gut balance. Yeah. So. Beautiful. You know, when you were talking just now, I, it reminded me of something that you wrote about, and it was we're kind of gonna we're gonna go a little bit off topic. Love it. Hey. Uh, it's called. Love it was, uh, yeah, uh, it's orthorexia or. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, where this this obsession with uh, with being healthy and uh, you know <laughs> the the obsession, which is just it could be just as unhealthy as being unhealthy, uh, but it's this obsession with health and uh, making sure you're not eating the wrong thing ever. I, I thought I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So. Orthorexia is, I it is not yet um, recognized by the DSM. The DSM is the book of uh, psych conditions that um, that we use for actual diagnoses. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not recognized yet, but I do think it will be eventually, as we have this very polarized society of of good and bad food, mm-hmm. and this you know developing little subset of of individuals that can become pretty obsessed with making good choices and being so strict about those choices that they um, are missing out on on life and their quality of life is diminished because of it. You know, being so strict in in, in what they eat. And this isn't at this has nothing to do with anorexia. Mm-hmm. You know, people who have these tendencies are eating enough but they're so particular and so strict about what they eat that it causes a great amount of distress. Yes. You know, yeah. the the classic example would be someone someone going on a trip and having true panic because they're they can't have access to foods that fit into their their categories of what's considered okay to put into their bodies. Mm. And that's just no way to live, yeah. you know. <laughs> that sounds yeah. like such a horrible way to live. I understand that we need to be healthy and uh and, and eat the right foods, but it, it needs to be I feel like it just needs to be effortless. It needs to be part of your lifestyle and not become like this just obsession just to eat the healthy foods and because then you, the second you eat something that's not healthy, you get all you have all this guilt, and yeah. Yeah. and you, let's just be honest. You know, part of enjoying life is food for a lot of us. Absolutely. You know, yeah. once in a As while, should you be. should have that cheesecake. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, I um, that blog post was motivated by someone calling me orth- orthorexic. Actually, oh really. Yeah, yeah, and I thought it was really interesting because you know I, I didn't take offense to it, but it, it, it I just thought it was interesting because this person knew that term and looked at just the fact that I eat healthy, mm-hmm. and now is throwing that term around, and that's where the line gets very blurred because mm-hmm. I don't want it. I don't want this trend to be like oh, you know, making any lifestyle choices, making any good healthy habits is then in some way, quote unquote, bad for your mental health, because that's not the case. It's taking it to the extreme. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's why I wrote that post to really clarify, you know, where that where that line can be blurred between, you know, effortlessly choosing to eat well most of the time um, and then becoming so obsessed that you can't live a normal life. Right, right. And and I love cake, and I will eat it when it's around, and I, and it's good quality, yummy cake that's worth it. I love cake. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm right there with you, uh, Doctor Shannon Tusanian. Am I seeing that last name correct? It's pretty close. It's to I don't even say it right. It's my married name, so <laughs> it's a uh, Tusonian. Tusonian, Doctor yeah. Shannon Tusonian. <laughs> Thank you so much. You have been. Uh, I've. This has been a great conversation. Uh, been a blast. very 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 you know informed and educated person and uh I, I love your outlook on things and uh i really encourage people to check you out on social media and uh follow you because you do you do put a lot of really good information out there especially for uh people interested in health and lifestyle and as well for, as well as uh people in the medical profession who are you know uh, on this road as well so where can people where can people connect with you and find you? Uh, so I have been trying to write more uh, on my blog. That's that's where I prefer people get you know 
any sort of viewpoints or, or information is primarily from my blog, which is Shanny, S-H-A-N-N-Y-D-O.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I'm pretty active on Instagram, which is Shanny underscore D-O. Uh, those are my two main forms of, of contact for social media. Awesome. Good. And uh, one last thing, I'd like to ask all of our guests uh, at the end of the show what going beyond medicine means to them or what beyond medicine means to them. And I get a very varied uh, responses from everybody that I ask this question and I always find it very interesting and I see that you do that every day with uh, you know your outlook on life and the the lifestyle habits that you have Um, but what does that mean to you yeah Um, beyond medicine is remembering that you're an individual and you're going to hear a lot of recommendations um, in the context of medicine um but you, through trial of error, trial and error, have the power to decide what's best for you to, to live your 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 best life. It's beautiful. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Dr. Shannon, thank you so much. You have been this great. Awesome. Yeah, this thank is fun. You. We're gonna have to do this again sometime. We're yeah. gonna we're gonna have to talk more about gut microbiome because yeah, I feel like uh, I feel like we just we had a lot to talk about today. So we'll have to do another one on that. Yeah, I could, I could ramble on in various <laughs> yeah, tangents yeah. about the microbiome, so I'd be happy to. It'd be fun. Awesome. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Cool. Thank you. Hey, podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I hope we brought you some practical, good advice that you can apply to your life. Guys, if you could please do us the favor of sharing this, telling people about it, leaving us a comment, subscribing, all that will help us grow and will help us spread our message Also, if you'd like to support our podcast, you can go to our website and click support and it will help us grow this podcast and continue doing what we are doing and bringing you more high quality guests like the one you just heard. Thank you guys. Peace.